This is the first day of a new year. The first day of the year 2023 A.D. That A.D. part is important. A.D. means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It is hugely significant that we measure time from the birth of Jesus. Our calendar, of course, is divided into what we call B.C., the years before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, uh, the years since Christ's birth, uh, the years of his reign. Christmas is literally the turning point in world history. When we count years, we are counting Christmases, the years since Christ's birth, because that's the great turning point in history. Whenever we state the year in terms of A.D., whether we're Christian or not, whether we believe in Jesus or not, we are confessing that the great turning point in history happened with Jesus' birth. We are confessing that Jesus is the Lord of time and the Lord of history. Our calendar system confesses the lordship of Jesus. Now, I realize you have secularists and progressives who want to replace A.D. with C.E., meaning common era, but that doesn't really negate the point. We'd still have to ask, what happened 2,023 years ago that created a common era? What do we have in common now over the last 2,023 years? It still traces back to Christ's birth and the new age he inaugurated. Jesus is the key to history. His coming is the turning point in history. Of course, it's not just his birth, although that's where the calendar starts, but his birth is just the first in a series of connected events, all of which were prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill all of these things. So think about this. The birth of Christ leads to the life of Christ, which led to the death of Christ, which led to the resurrection of Christ, which led to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we can see God executed his plan of salvation by sending his son and then by sending his spirit. These different events in this chain are all distinguishable. Each one has its own meaning and makes its own contribution to the whole. But these events are inseparable. They all belong together. They are like links in a chain. And all together, these facts, these events, form what we call the gospel. This story, this true story, this factual story of God inaugurating his kingdom through Jesus and through the Spirit. This is the gospel. Now, Zephaniah 3.9 is a prophecy of how God will do this. And it is, as I said, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because of the way it ties together so much of what comes before and what comes later. This prophecy by Zephaniah was given around the year 620 B.C., so 620 years or so before Jesus' birth. And it's referring back to an event, the Tower of Babel, that happened around 2200 B.C. And it's pointing forward to another event, Pentecost, which took place around 30 AD, and of course the consequences of which continue to reverberate down to our day here in 2023. Think about this. What happened at Babel? You go back to Genesis 11. Uh, you probably know the story there. Uh, humanity is congregated together. They're going to build a tower to the heavens. And God judges humanity by confusing their languages. And in doing this, God forces humanity to do what he wanted us to do, and that is to spread out throughout the earth, to fill the earth, to diversify into different ethnic and cultural and linguistic groups. From the various peoples that came out of that judgment, God chose one man, one man, Abraham, 
to become his special people, the one through whom he would bring salvation to the nations. And so in the very next chapter, you've got Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. God calls Abraham. And God tells Abraham he will make his name great. Remember, that's what they wanted at Babel. They wanted to make a great name for themselves. Well, God comes to Abraham and says, I will make your name great, Abraham. It's really the photo negative of what happened at Babel. At Babel, men said, we will make our name great. We will make a great name for ourselves. God comes to Abraham and says, I will make your name great. And of course, there are other contrasts between Babel and Abraham. While the people of Babel stayed in one place, refusing to scatter and fill the earth, Abraham was willing to follow God's call and go to an unknown land. When he gets there, what does he do? The people at Babel wanted to build a tower to heaven. What does Abraham do? He builds an altar to worship on the earth. And while the people of Babel wanted to be one nation, and they wanted to build a city, God tells Abraham he will become the father of many nations because he is looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. The people of Babel wanted one nation and a city of their own making. God says to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations because you're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. At the Tower of Babel, God pronounces a curse that divides humanity. But with Abraham, God promises a blessing that will unite humanity. God says in Genesis 12 that in Abraham, he will bless all the families of the earth. In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham he will be the father of a multitude of nations. A curse at Babel led to the scattering of humanity and the forming of many nations. By contrast, a blessing given to Abraham promises to reunite the many nations so they come to share in Abraham's blessing. But how will God do it? How will God fulfill this promise of blessing upon all the families and nations of the earth, this promise he's made to Abraham? How will God transmit this blessing to the nations? Well, Zephaniah 3.9 gives us insight. Zephaniah 3.9 tells us what God will do. God says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God has changed the speech of the peoples already. God changed the speech of the peoples at Babel to confuse them. He changed their speech to drive them apart. But God says in Zephaniah, he will change the speech of the peoples again, this time not to confuse them and drive them apart, but to unite them together as one in calling upon the Lord. They're not going to speak new languages, but rather they're going to use their various languages to call upon the Lord and to worship him. In the ancient world, after Babel, every people group had its own language and its own god or gods. Speaking a different language went along with worshiping a different god. Oh, you speak this language, you worship that god. You speak this language, you worship this other god over here. That's pretty much how it went. But Zephaniah says a day is coming when God will change all of that. The many languages of the world will be purified, they will be sanctified, and they will be used. These many languages will be used to worship the same God, the one true God. Well, when do Zephaniah's words come to pass? Fast forward to the book of Acts, 
In chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his small band of disciples that he will send his Holy Spirit upon them and they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus will scatter his disciples like the people were scattered at Babel, only this time not as a judgment, but as an assignment. Not as a judgment, but as a mission. But if they scatter out to the ends of the earth... They're going to encounter people who speak different languages. How will they witness to them? Acts chapter 2 answers. Acts chapter 2, it is the time for the Feast of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke tells us that people had gathered in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Now that's not quite literally true, but Luke actually lists 17 different people groups, 17 different nations in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that are there, present in the city of Jerusalem. These are representatives of the nations that were scattered on the day of Babel's judgment. Now they're gathered together, and what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out, as Jesus had promised. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, what happens? The disciples are enabled to speak the gospel in different languages so everyone there could hear the gospel in his own tongue. It's a miracle. It's a speech miracle. God changes the speech of his disciples so they can preach the gospel to every people group there in their own language. And of course, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of Zephaniah 3.9. Remember I said last week that Pentecost does not really reverse Babel. God does not undo what he did at Babel. We don't revert back to one nation with one language after Pentecost. Rather, God sanctifies what he did at Babel. God fulfills what he did at Babel. And this is because it was always God's intention for humanity to scatter across the earth and to uh, form various nations, even if man had never sinned. Different human nations and different human languages would have formed. In an unfallen world, of course, these differences in language and culture would not have been a problem. Every people group would have perfectly loved every other people group. And that would have been just fine. That's how the world would have looked. It's very different today, obviously. We have different nations, different people groups, different languages. And what so often happens? Well, in a fallen world, very often people of different cultures and languages view others as inferior or even as subhuman. But this is where Zephaniah comes in, Zephaniah 3.9. Through the gospel, through the work of God's spirit, people of different cultures and languages can learn to love and appreciate one another. And so God's plan is to sanctify each of these people groups and bring them into his kingdom. And this is something we see stated again and again and again in Scripture. In Revelation 5 and then again in Revelation 7, John is shown the diversity of the redeemed, how God will save a great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 11.15 says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 22 shows us that in the church there is the tree of life and the tree of life bears fruit for the healing of the nations. God's going to heal the nations through the ministry of his church. Again, God's plan has always been to take the gospel global. The blessing is for all families, all nations. In Psalm 22, of course, that psalm starts out prophesying the sufferings of Jesus. But by the time you come to the end of it, 
It's about the triumph of Jesus and the reign of Jesus over the nations. Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven promises, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord for all the families of the nations will worship him. Psalm 72, verse 17, another psalm about the coming king, the Messiah. All nations will call him blessed. Isaiah 11, verse 9 says, The earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How fully do the waters cover the sea? All the way. Isaiah is promising a time when the Gentiles will seek the Lord and the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, full of the knowledge of God's glory. The existence of many nations is good. Remember, the curse that fell at Babel happened because man had rejected God's plan of spreading out and forming many diverse nations. And so God makes it happen. He forces it. Every nation has unique treasures to offer. Every language has its own beauty. Every people group manifests a different aspect of God's image. I love the way Jim Jordan describes this. He says, every language has a particular set of perspectives on the word of God, and thus every language is fitted to reveal God and praise him in a special way. When God is praised in the Chinese language, that brings out different facets of who God is than what we get in English. And it is this way with every language. Every language, every people group is able to bring out some different facet of God's character. And this has, again, been God's plan all along. God's design for humanity is that as a whole, we would image the Trinity. That is to say that there would be unity in diversity and diversity in unity. At Babel, there was unity, but no diversity. After Babel, there was diversity, but no unity. Only when the Holy Spirit is poured out can the human race attain unity and diversity Together, Many nations coming together to worship the one God. Many nations joined together confessing the same Savior. That was God's promise to Abraham. Given in the aftermath of Babel, God's promise to Abraham, through you, through your seed, all nations, all families will be blessed. That was God's promise, that all the diverse families and nations of the earth would be made one and would come to share in the faith and the blessings of Abraham and worship Abraham's God with one accord. That's what God is doing today. He is regathering fragmented humanity into one in his son, sanctifying and maturing each people group. There's no other religion that can unite humanity in this way. There's no secular way to unite the nations. Only in the gospel, only in the gospel of Christ and his spirit do we find power to unite the nations? In fact, this is the gospel that God has given to us in his word. It's really interesting. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, we see this is what the gospel promises. In Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul tells us that God pre-preached the gospel to Abraham. God announced the gospel to Abraham ahead of time. And what is the gospel given to Abraham? According to Galatians 3, 8, it is this in you. All nations will be blessed. Many nations, one blessing. And if you read through the rest of Galatians, what is that one blessing? It really breaks up into two parts. The forgiveness of sins through Christ and new life through the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing of Abraham promised to the nations. I think we have a lot of confusion about nations today. Uh, today you have, of course, globalism. 
uh, as a movement. Globalism really is all about denying diversity. Uh, globalism wants to mush all the nations into one monocultural entity, and so globalism inevitably descends into tyranny. But today's nationalism isn't really any better because today's nationalism is really about every nation seeking its own interests, and, and, and there's no way to unite the nations in their diversity. And so nationalism tends to descend into chaos and war. We've seen that in history. The only hope for preserving national uniqueness and creating harmony between the different nations is the Holy Spirit. The promise of Zephaniah 3.9. It is the nations being converted to a pure confession so that each nation calls upon the Lord in its own language. That's our only hope. Now, it's really important to understand here what Zephaniah's prophecy means for nations and how we as Christians view nations and indeed how we seek to shape our own nation. The whole book of Zephaniah really is about nations. I think that's one reason why it's so neglected is people don't really know what to do with this book. It's not about your personal relationship with Jesus. It's about God's personal relationship with the nations. And so we have a hard time figuring out, what do we do with a book like this? But it's so important. Zephaniah is all about nations. We need to understand what a nation is. A nation typically has a geographic region, and it has a government, and it has a culture, and it has a language. Now, sometimes all those things don't uh, manifest themselves in the same way. For example, you can have a nation that is multilingual. That's possible. Or it may be that you have a nation that does not have its own government. Perhaps it's ruled by an empire, so it doesn't govern itself. But basically, this is what a nation is in the Bible, a people, an identifiable people who share geography, government, culture, and language. Nations are typically organized into states. A state is the political manifestation of a nation. So the state has the power of the sword and the power to tax, but there's always more to a nation than the state, than the political aspect. These nations are the object of Zephaniah's prophecy. When he speaks of God changing the language of the peoples, purifying the speech of the peoples, this is what he's talking about, nations in this way. Of course, nations in this way are also the object of the church's mission. The great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 28 tells us that God wants every nation to be discipled and taught all of his commandments. The object of the church's mission is the nations of the world. So you can see the promises of God about the nations and the mission of the church to the nations really dovetail. What God has said he will do and what he has commanded us to do really go together. They fit together. The love of God will reach into every nation. The transforming power of the Spirit will reach into every people group through his church. Jesus will be praised by every nation. The speech of every people group will be changed so that his truth is confessed in every language. And of course, ultimately, that will be far more beautiful than if he was only worshipped in one language. This is what God wants. This is his design. Now again, think about this, what this means. The whole book of Zephaniah is about nations. In the earlier part of the book, really leading up to this section in 
uh, chapter 3, the middle of chapter 3, in the earlier part of his prophecy, he has been describing how God's judgment will come upon all the earth. And no nation, not even the nation of Judah, not even the nation of Israel, will be exempt. God's judgment is going to come on all the earth. Now he's describing a salvation that will come upon all the earth. Just as all these nations will be judged, so now there is a salvation for all these nations as well. Zephaniah is telling us each nation finds its fulfillment in Christ and the Spirit. Nations find their true end, their true goal, their true completion in Christ and in his Spirit. No nation is what it should be until it becomes a Christian nation. Becoming a Christian would not make somebody here less of an American. It would make them a more true American. If a Chinese person in China converts to the Christian faith, it doesn't make him less Chinese. It makes him what it makes him a representative of what China really should be. See, there is this transformation. When Zephaniah says God will change the people's speech, God will change the people's confession to a pure confession. He is promising that the nations will be converted and Christianized. That is the mission God has given to his church. And Zephaniah is saying that mission will be fulfilled. This is the goal history is moving towards. In the biblical view, history is linear. History is going somewhere. History is a story with a plot, a conflict, a resolution. And there is progress all along the way as we move towards this goal. And incidentally, I'll tell you here, pagans don't view history as a story. Pagans don't view history as having a beginning, middle, and end. Timelines, you know, you kids have timelines at school probably. Timelines are a Christian invention. That's how Christians, that's a uniquely Christian way of looking at history. Think of history as a story that's going somewhere. That is uniquely Christian. Christians are the true historians because we understand what history is all about. We understand that history has a purpose and a goal. So when I say to you, that all the nations of the earth will be Christianized. I'm not speculating about the future. I'm telling you what God has promised in his infallible world. Word. Let me ask you a question. We live in the year 2023. What do you think the world is going to look like in the year 4046 AD? What do you think the world's going to look like in the year 10,000 AD? I think we're probably still living in the days of the early church. I think there's good reason to believe we are living in the early days of church history. History has a long way to go. But Zephaniah here is telling us the arc, the trajectory, the shape history will take. He's telling us how history will go and where it's going to go. Zephaniah is revealing the future of history. Zephaniah is revealing the future of history, or we could say the history of the future. Think about this. Zephaniah says the language of all the peoples will be changed to a pure language. That is, God's truth will be confessed in every language of every people group under heaven. We speak English. This has happened with English. The English language has been partially changed to a pure language. English, of course, is still used to worship idols. English is still used to curse the living God. But many English speakers use this wonderful language of ours to worship the true God, just as we are this morning. We use our language, the English language, 
to praise the living God. A language that didn't even exist when Zephaniah prophesied, a language that didn't exist when Pentecost happened. And here we are using our language to worship the living God, the God of Abraham. And the same is true of other languages, Chinese, Russian, Swahili, French, Spanish. God is in the process of changing the languages of all peoples. That process is underway. It's not close to being finished, but that process is underway. And of course, the change in language Zephaniah promises really requires a change in the hearts and character of the people and indeed a change in the whole culture of a nation. And this is ultimately what Zephaniah is pointing us to. This is what it means to disciple a nation, to change the heart and the culture of that nation, to bring every aspect of that nation's life under the lordship of Christ and into conformity with his word. It used to be that all Christians knew this. We still sing about it in our hymns. I talked about this last week, how many of our hymns mention the nations and the earth and Jesus coming to save the nations and redeem the nations and bless the nations. It used to be Christians just knew this. Today, I don't think we really get it nearly as much. Uh, probably the most famous Bible commentator in the history of the church is Matthew Henry. Uh, the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry describes the meaning of the Great Commission this way. He says, what is the principal intention of the Great Commission? That is, what is the purpose of the Great Commission? He says, it is to disciple all nations, to make the nations disciples. And so he says, do your utmost. This is what it means for us. Do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. Until a nation can be regarded as a Christian nation, the Great Commission has not been completed in that nation. That's the goal. Now consider this too. When Zephaniah pronounced judgment on various nations in this book, he did so in various areas of life. He singles out specific sins that nations are guilty of committing. So for example, in chapter 1, he condemns their trust in silver and gold, their greed, the greed of their merchants, their lack of respect for private property. In chapter 2, he condemns sexual sins. He talks about those nations that replicate the way of life found in Sodom and Gomorrah. He identifies their sexual perversion. Uh, earlier in chapter 3, he exposed the sins of rulers and judges who oppress the people rather than serving the people, who pervert justice rather than administering true justice. So think about this. If God is going to change the nations, if God is going to restore and bless and purify the nations, it's going to mean transforming the nations in all of these areas. And so nations that are characterized by greed, that greed will be replaced by generosity. And along with it, there will be faithful and wise stewardship of property. Sexual perversion will be replaced by chastity and marital faithfulness. Political corruption will be replaced by justice according to God's law, justice as God defines it. And so the rulers will serve God and serve their people in wisdom and in righteousness. If God's going to change the speech of the peoples, this is what it must mean. A total reformation, a total reconstruction of the cultures of the nations. This is what God is promising. This is what we aim for. This is what we work for. This is what we pray for. The Christianization of the nations. See, our mission is not just to save souls, to Christianize souls. 
That's important, of course. But our mission is not just saving souls. It's transforming cultures. Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. If the curse damaged it, then Jesus came to bless it, to heal it, and to restore it. Grace restores nature. And that means grace restores and transforms civilizations. Grace purifies the speech and the civilization of the peoples. See, what happened at the Tower of Babel? That was a corrupt culture, a corrupt civilization. Babel was about creating a godless and corrupt city and a godless and corrupt civilization. If God is going to sanctify what happened at Babel, if he's going to purify the speech of the peoples, what must he do? He must create a glorious and godly civilization. He must create glorious and godly cities. And of course, when a bunch of cities and then a bunch of nations convert and are Christianized in this way, we call that Christendom, a Christian civilization. Again, it's not just about saving individuals. It's about building institutions. It's not just saving souls. It's discipling nations. Now, I mentioned this morning how we have an opportunity to go work with Peru Mission this May. And I'd encourage you to really consider that. This is one of the things that I love most about the work of Peru Mission, is they are one of the few mission organizations out there that I know of that has really caught this holistic vision. They get this. If you ever, if you ever heard Wes Baker talk, you know he gets this. You know, think about Peru Mission. They do evangelism. They do pastoral training. They do church planting. You could say all of that is really the core of what they do but it's not the full extent of it. They also do mercy ministry. They care for the poor. They minister to the poor. They do medical care. We've had several doctors go down there and help with their medical clinic. Uh, they start Christian schools because Christian education, Christian schools, that's one of the institutions we need if we're going to Christianize a people, a nation. They do microfinance and they train entrepreneurs in business. They do counseling. They do university ministry. They do apologetics. They get involved in politics. It is holistic. Peru mission is not just trying to save a handful of Peruvians. They're not just trying to save the souls of a handful of Peruvians. They want to transform the whole nation of Peru. They want to transform the nation of Peru. They want to purify the speech of the Peruvians. They want to produce a discipled Peru, a Christianized Peru. That is the goal, nothing less. And let me tell you, Zephaniah says it will come to pass. God will change the nations. God will change the speech of the nations. What is a Christianized Peru going to look like? What treasures might it bring into the kingdom of God? What will a Christianized China look like? What glories might be revealed in a purified, sanctified Zimbabwe? What treasures might a Christianized Nepal bring into the kingdom? The city and tower of Babel failed. But the city of the new Jerusalem and the temple that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will not fail. Because God has put his word behind it. God's promise stands behind the mission of the church. In fact, you see this. I've really focused on verse 9, but you see this into verse 10. Through the prophet in Zephaniah 3.10, God says this, from beyond the rivers of Cush or Ethiopia, remember that's the homeland of Zephaniah's father, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring offerings. 
God is saying his word, his gospel, his blessing is going to go to the ends of the earth, even the faraway places, the nations dispersed at Babel, the nations that have been alienated from God, the nations that have worshipped idols, they will be drawn near to God. And they will join in worshiping the true God. They're going to bring him offerings. The scattered ones it talks about here, the dispersed ones, of course, those are the descendants of Babel. And now they're being gathered, not physically, but they're being gathered spiritually into a worshiping community. They're going to be fellow worshipers of the living God. They're going to bring an offering. They're going to bring sacrifices to the true God. You could say this is Zephaniah's version of Malachi 1.11. Think about this prophecy in Malachi chapter 1. It's the same thing. Through the prophet, God says there, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering will be made for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. From the rising of the sun to its setting, all across the face of the earth, God is going to be worshipped. That is God's purpose for history. This is the story we're living in. The story of global redemption. It is the story of Christ inheriting the nations. He died to purchase. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world so that through him the nations might be redeemed. That's the story we're living in. This is the story of the world. It's a story of global redemption through God's Son and God's Spirit. What is the story of history? It is the story of the nations being Christianized, the story of God's kingdom growing to fill the earth. The world may not know it. The world doesn't know it yet, but this is the world's story. I would say for many modern Christians, many modern American Christians, all too often our prayers and our hopes and our expectations are far too small. We have far too small a view of God and the gospel and what God is doing in the world and what God has promised. Zephaniah is a small book, but Zephaniah makes big promises. Zephaniah has got a big gospel and Zephaniah points us to a big God. Zephaniah's promises, which of course are repeated all through Scripture, should determine our understanding of what God is doing and what the church should be doing in the world. Again, Zephaniah shows us a big God with a big gospel and big plans making big promises. God's plan is one church discipling many nations. One gospel bringing salvation to many nations. God's plan is for the many nations to confess, each in their own language, one gospel, one Lord, one Savior. God's plan is to bless the nations, to bless all the families of the earth. God's plan is to save the world. So a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be brought into his kingdom. Now, is it hard to believe that this is God's plan for our planet? Is it hard to believe that this is God's promise for our planet? If you just look at current events, maybe so. If you just look at current events, you might think, you know what, the world sure is changing, but it's not changing the way Zephaniah said it would change. It's not changing for the better. We're not seeing the, the nations, the speech of the peoples purified and made holy. We're seeing the speech and the culture of the nations get worse. Zephaniah said the nations would change. Well, they're changing, but it seems they're changing for the worse. 
You might think 2022 was a lousy year. And it doesn't look like 2023 is going to be any better. But see, we're the people of God. We don't just look at current events. We look at the world through the lens of God's promises. We look at the world through the lens of Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10. 2022 is not a lousy year. 2022 was another year of our Lord. It was 2022 AD, another year of Christ's reign. And 2023 is going to be the same way. It's 2023 AD, another year of Christ's reign. History belongs to Jesus, and he is accomplishing exactly what he wants each year. And he will fulfill his promises. He'll fulfill them on his own timetable and at his own pace but he will most certainly fulfill the promises he has made. You can doubt God if you want. You can doubt God if you want, I suppose. But God loves to prove his doubters wrong. And he will. My advice to you is to never bet against God. Never bet against Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's going to get his way. His promises will be fulfilled. This will all come to pass. God will change the nations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.